0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Thirst for Knowledge podcast It's me, Lawrence, and as always, I have my co-host Steve here How are you doing, Steve? Good, how are you doing? I'm alright, I'm alright You catch the Super Bowl, or did you not watch it because the Patriots weren't in it? Um, So, even though the Patriots
1: weren't in it, I watched it Um, it was terrible because the refs played part in it too much for my liking. They had some heinous calls that I think helped decide the game. And I really don't, I don't mind. I didn't, you know, I actually didn't even have a team in the sport, you know, in the, in the game. I just really want to see a clean game, you know, and I know it can't be 100% clean, but there's some bad calls. I don't get it, but there's a great halftime show that has caused, you know, I, our uh, lack of diversity and uh, some grumpy value train people, like, just going nuts.
0: Would you say that uh, the halftime show is a disgrace to the game of Magic the Gathering? Only only the real will get that reference. Yeah. I expect almost nobody to get that reference, right. but... Right, The people who do... Oh, they'll get it. Um. Yeah, I... The halftime show is interesting. I, I didn't watch the game. I ended up watching the halftime show after seeing people blow up Twitter about it. And um, it wasn't for me, but I'm sure there's some Hispanic kid in the United States who's hyped about seeing uh, he or she or they about having their culture represented on the big stage. So that's cool.
1: Yeah. It was, I mean, so. to me, it was like it was fine. Like, it was cool to see J-Lo for the first time in forever like beyond that it's like eh, you know i i don't you're you're the, either there to watch football or watch bad commercials and this year's commercials were really
0: so the commercials i saw that hit twitter made me want to um find the nearest bridge and swan dive in the traffic <laughs> uh so
1: <clears throat> yeah i mean i was baffled by um so it was on fox this year and I just don't remember it being on Fox in a long time I guess but it was on Fox and um they had like local commercials piped in like in points so like like Bob's car wash and I'm just like I'm watching the Super Bowl and Bob's car wash is on like come on like I don't I didn't I was kind of baffled by it so
0: yeah I just have like negative actual interest in the Super Bowl and I haven't Found a Super Bowl commercial like interesting in years. I think, I think it's one of those relics of a bygone era. You know, it's just a thing that's tradition at this point. But like, who cares about Super Bowl ads when like it? it, You know, it's not the internet exists. It's a lot easier to get ads to your target audience. Whereas the whole idea behind Super Bowl ads was probably um, here's this day where you just have an absurd number of people watching the same thing so you could just do this like shotgun ad job and hit a large enough field of people that something will stick now you don't have to do that yeah so
1: yeah i definitely agree with that it's just like i said i mean it was like it, it was there was some crazy nonsense with some of the play calls um the refs made some crazy decisions and then the commercials were bobs car wash so like overall like my wife had no interest in it because she really just likes commercials and the halftime show and so you know it was just you know it's just a very strange it was a very strange super bowl i at like one point i missed i guess i missed the 49ers coming onto the field but i caught the chiefs and it was dwayne johnson the rock like calling them in like on the mic rocking them out and like I was, and I kept looking for the 49ers interest. I never got to see it. So I don't know who who it was. I, I, I guess someone, some nobody, but, you know, The Rock did this one and everybody cared about it. Maybe it was Kevin Hart. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, he's probably too busy making documentaries for Netflix right now. Oh. Um,
1: but. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it was crazy. I was just like, this is. It's a crazy world we're in, but, you know. But there was other things that happened. There was
0: non-stop Pioneer. Oh, my God. I... This last weekend was perfect for my terrible sleep schedule. Um One thing I enjoy doing is waking up uh, at just random hours, I guess. You're not sleeping well or whatever. And just drinking tea. And, uh... T plus Pioneer worked out. So,
1: my my wife thinks it's funny because I wake up and I'll turn on my 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 phone to Twitch immediately, and she's like, you, "You've been awake like twelve seconds and you're watching this already?" And I'm like, "Oh my goodness, it's like it's like three o'clock in the afternoon there. They've already had like a bunch of rounds go by. I got to reconstruct this draft to figure out how this deck got built." <laughs> so,
0: but I oh I just didn't watch draft coverage. I still have not hit a point. Like for me to actually watch draft coverage, I have to be pretty engrossed in the draft format. Like um, some masters formats, I've actually done a good bit of drafting and gotten pretty deep into it, so I've been able to watch like GP or PT coverage. But other than that, I just don't care.
1: See, they've for me, it's got to be a good set. War of the Spark was actually a very good draft set. Uh, Throne of Eldraine was excellent probably one of the best ones just because all colors and all color pairs were equal like you could play a mono color deck or a two color deck and and it was like they were all equal mono blue blue black it didn't matter and that was to me really interesting um and then this Theros set has been kind of like super interesting because the creatures aren't really i mean dream trawler aside whatever who cares like it's a it's a rare move on past that but like all the commons and uncommon creatures they're pretty pretty balanced and it's kind of a neat format to see so i've i've so i didn't get to catch all of draft like i wanted to um and i really want because i only had so much time so i dedicated my time toward the pioneer side of it because i wanted to see if uh If the truth of the inverter was there.
0: Yeah, I watched most of the Brussels coverage, or mostly Brussels coverage, and caught bits of the Japanese coverage. I think it was harder for me to watch the Japanese stuff because, um, like, they did a rebroadcast in English, but it's time lined up, like, in a place where it overlapped with other things. And um, the Brussels coverage, like, it was in the middle of the night, so it was just perfect for me. I did kind of catch a little bit of the Japanese coverage. I just played it uh on mute while I was listening to something else, but usually that was when I was falling back asleep. So I didn't really extensively watch it.
1: Well, the- Brussels was really good. I think the I think they crushed it as far as the coverage team I think did good job. I think I loved everything about Brussels as far as like the presentation of the format, everything else, it kind of like made me laugh. Cause you know, we've, we pulled back on coverage so hard, but then we bring, you know, a good team in and do a very solid job. And you're it, all for me, it reminds me of is why aren't we doing coverage more often? You know, but uh,
0: mostly because of costs, I guess. Um, but coverage is pretty huge in terms of actually building player morale. I, I, I think GP coverage back in 2012 to whenever they cut it had a huge hand in actually pulling a large number or like actually getting people interested in competitive magic. I know for myself, I probably never would have played competitive magic if I hadn't watched uh, Worlds 2012 or stumbled across it on YouTube. You could say that Star City also has a similar effect, but... um, you know having access to both was definitely a factor for me at least so we'll see what happens um i don't expect wizards to actually put a huge emphasis on gp coverage uh it's, i i don't know what they're doing with their money but it seems like they're trying to allocate it elsewhere so you well, know well the that's brussels their decision
1: the brussels um well, the well, you know, spoiler alert. The if you didn't see it, the PT, the uh, the Asian PT, unfortunately, the top eight was mostly one deck. But the P, the Brussels was actually a very good diverse spread of decks, and they have um, all the decks with eight wins, I believe, eight, ten, yeah, ten, eight in the construction portion. So that was kind of neat to see, like a breakdown of not just you know, the top eight, but like some of the decks that um, they did really well in the constructed portion, you know, they might not have done well in the draft portion. I guess they, I mean, they also, went down pretty far.
0: Um, max Gilmore did a good bit of compiling of data. I only briefly get at it, but I think he calculated like win rates and a bunch of other stuff for um, the pro tours. So it's on the min max blog. Um, and I will add a link to our show notes so people will be able to access it there. Uh, so he has the combined win rates, uh, like the metagame breakdown, just a bunch of uh, information on these decks. Well, we were... Um, you, you Top card,
1: I bet you can guess it, out of PT Brussels.
0: I mean, it's going to be like something out of that deck. Thoughtseize, I guess?
1: Thoughtseize, yep. Thoughtseize, thoughtseize. You Know that's the most powerful, like, imbi- you know, ambiguous card, right? Like, it just does everything you ever want. So, um, there's Fatal Push, Thought Seize, Fatal Push, Opt, then Dig Through Time. You know, that's the card I think if Inverter Deck becomes too popular, I think they'll probably chop Dig Through Time, it'll die for Thoughts That Oracle Sins. Um, and everything else is just kind of, I mean, the, the first place deck was that Soul Tide Delirium deck, and Joel, Ar- Joel Larson's a, a beast, because this deck looks like a hot pile, but you no. Know.
0: I think that it is very much too early to be discussing a ban of this inverter deck. I think there's a lot of room to explore playing like, with and against the shell. Um, one thing I noticed is that like a lot of these inverter decks weren't playing uh, Disdainful Stroke or effects like that, and I wouldn't be shocked to see those come into play at some point in the near future. Uh, Just because the card seems to hit pretty much everything of relevance post-board, except for, like, Thassa's Oracle, but a lot of the big haymakers that you have to spend a good bit of time trying to, you know, bob-weave and leverage. So I'm curious to see what innovation happens. We're already starting to see, like, three-color versions that play Euro, Grizzly, Salvage, more of, like, a turbo-combo-style deck. Yeah. So I'm you know the
1: problem the the problem with stroke so stroke is great but like when they're on like the baby chase or the or the og ashiok plan like the stroke just sits in your hand while they're looking for one of their eight discard spells because they run the full place out of thought season thought erasure like they actually they usually can find like basically what they need to uh to play around that or just rip it out of your hand at a later date you know it's, it's If you ever look at their list, I mean, like, look at Canister's list. Canister probably has, yes, well, he says four Thoughtseize, two th- Thought Erasure. But then he does have um, Ashiok, Nightmare Weaver, in his sideboard.
0: So, like... Yeah, the, the thing is, like, the way these mirrors are playing out, at least as I was watching them, is both players were spending a good amount of resources in the early game just kind of shredding each other. Yeah. But uh eventually top decks would happen right people were still able to leverage mystical dispute
1: um well yeah you you're also dig through time decks right so like it's right. first of the dig wins and then omen of the sea is actually the mana sink that allows you to kind of get there without worrying about the stack
0: uh to degree but like i think that there's enough room to just put cards in your deck like the the thing about this shell is that it's a discard shell and we saw this play out in the top 8 uh when Canister was playing against Paulo Vitor where he just cast a bunch of discard spells and then comboed yep but the games where it doesn't have like exactly that perfect draw of discard spell discard spell discard spell combo um it you it, the deck doesn't really put on a fast clock and it gives you time to draw something so I'm I i would not be shocked to see maybe these shells become a little more threat dense. You know, people went from blue red twin to uh rug twin with Tarmogoyf. right? Yep. Have a easily compactable plan B. I mentioned that people were playing like a bug version of this deck with Euro, so we're already seeing these sort of um diversifications being implemented by players. So
1: I mean Euro plays perfect with the deck, right? Like, because it's like, you uh, want to delve, you want to get, you want to delve away some cards so your, your oracles don't have to be there. Like, you don't have to have the pips on your oracles.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it also just gives you a thing to do, right? You, right. These decks were like, the Jaces were really awkward to cast and leverage because they were four mana and played into Mystic Speed and everything, and the decks, like, like I said, they weren't very threatened, so... Unless you clear the way with a discard spell, your, you, your opponent often seems to be able to like set up a point where they can actually leverage their dispute. There's a lot of that going on. And I think that uh, having just like a mid-rangey threat, even if you're, the Euro hits, like, eats a dispute or whatever, you're fine with that. You're fine with just getting that trade in early and getting resources out of your opponent's hand because that just makes your discard spells better and then lets you set up your combo plan a bit better. And Euro is a good foil for counter magic because it just comes back. So, you know, I mentioned the list that I saw had Grizzly Salvage, uh, which allows you to set up like a good turn two into like turn three Euro, whatever happens, happens. And then you can like turn forward again. And if your opponent has spent like two cards on you casting Euro, then you're fine with that. And then you can follow that up with, you know, something else. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, the ba- right. the, the, definitely the, um, the addition of Euro. I saw the Euro list and I really kind of, I like it. Um, I don't think you can duck Jace Wilder of Mysteries because the card is like bananas in the deck and you kind of need something to play around, um, uh, the ego card. Uh, blue black. Pick a- yeah. Unmortigo. Unmortigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you need something along those lines because, like, you know, the, if, You don't care if they take Inverter of Truth, but if like, if you just had Inverter of Truth and Thassa's Oracle, invert, and they take Thassa's Oracle, Inverter of Truth really becomes a liability, unless you can chain them, where you're.
0: Uh, people were able to play through them, play through those sort of Slaughter Games effects, but the games weren't very clean per se. Uh, so I, I'm curious to see what else people could do. Um. I don't know if there are actually like any red or white cards worth splashing. Teferi stood out as a card that seemed interesting to me. But I saw other than I saw that... someone test
1: Esper. I saw someone Tess Esper for the PT, but the, the white was a liability. Um and the only card that was worth it was Teferi. Like all the other cards they tried were just awkward on their mana. Yeah, that's
0: what I was that's what I was thinking. Like Teferi's good. But then you're like making your mana so much worse, which is a huge liability in Pioneer. Like part of what makes this deck seem good is the fact that it's just straight blue black, so its mana is, you know, as implode proof as possible by the format standards. Yeah, I mean, and uh,
1: you actually get to play uh, like ahead. the bicycle lands. Like your fetid pools are actually good bicycle lands, and it's kind of fun because when you create a. a new library with inverter it kind of like will help you redraw so like if they did counter your Jace Wilder of Mysteries or your Thassa's Oracle and then you inverted you can then like get it back and then get to it faster with the bicycle wave so I personally like that a lot like I think it's a really uh part because I saw that I think I saw it in the Japanese coverage I saw a lot of like inverter of truth lines where like it was like inverter of truth get back the real thing that they need, cast another inverter of truth after bicycling landing to make sure that there's still a card on top of their library so they don't die instantly, you know? And it, it, it just created some neat points for the game.
0: Yeah, the play patterns were interesting and air quote new, but I think it's mostly because like people are leveraging these wonky effects and having to figure out a way to actually play through them in a, a tenable way. So I'm curious I I'm curious to see what happens what tech will will come of it um I wouldn't be surprised to see cards like Germag Angler or Tassiger happen. Taker seems like a pretty good card to like sideboard in in this matchup it it dodges like the fatal pushes right We saw lists I think Egger Magyash had what one hero's downfall something like that. Uh, it can quickly check here, yeah, they usually have and, one
1: like they'll they'll do one or they'll do a murderous rider,
0: right, okay, yeah, so there's like one ish hard answer for a big thing, and everything else people are playing is pretty reliant on um you know either trading inverters or all of these other effects, and something like uh tasiger is a perfect card to punish. Uh, these play patterns of just shredding each other and then play, passing the turn with, like, a bunch of mana up. Yeah, so Edgar has four Fatal Push, one Hero's Downfall, one Murderous Cut, and then he only had six discard spells, but I think I like his addition of two Supreme Wills. It makes sense in terms of digging for combo and all of that. Um, He also has the three Pack Rats, which... Seemed like a really nice sideboard plan. But, um...
1: The yeah, canister went with the Scarab God and Kalidus.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: like... And Scarab God was insane. Because that, like... That let him beat... Uh... Paulo Vito. Like, single-handedly, the Scarab God did that. Like, one that... I think it was game three.
0: Because, like... Scar- yeah, the sca- He and top with the Scarab God in one... A Tale as Old as Time, right? Right.
1: Well, I mean, it was funny. Like... Because I think he, like, murdered a... A... a uh he murdered a Niv-Mizzet, got it back with Scarab God, and then got the Thought Scour that he knew was in, in the light. It was a reduced great, like library because he had already been murdered. And so, like, he got back the Thought Scour, and that took the card that Paulo was going to win with. And so it was just like a crazy set of circumstances where a canister... Thought Scour? a no, Thought Erasure, I'm sorry, Thought Erasure. Thought Erasure, yeah, it, okay. Because niv visit grabs Guilds, and he grabbed Thought Erasure, and then he cast Thought Erasure, and it took the card that uh, Paulo was going to win with. And that was like, Canisters played the deck a ton. You know, watched him stream it a ton, and you could see it when watching him play. He knew these crazy lines like very well, and I think that was it. Like, this deck isn't just an A plus B combo. It's got a lot of nuances to it, but that, re- that reminds me of Splinter Twin. Because everybody was always like, Splinter Twin's so easy. And I was like, it's actually not easy. It was very difficult to pilot the deck correctly. It was easy to game one. But like game two and three, the deck became very complicated.
0: A lot of people also played Twin at a local level. And it was pretty easy to uh, get a skewed sense of uh, competency. From what I could tell. Like I knew a number of people who played Twin on the small ball field and thought they were significantly better than they were. Uh, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. Right. Um, but like, you know, the first place list Joel Larson
1: was playing was, that was, a, a
0: bug cards. It was delirium. Uh, it was
1: delirium. And it was actually really, we haven't like a lot of people have tried an attempt at delirium, but it's always never, they've always went too far down the rabbit hole or they've played the, the grim player card which is just such a mediocre card um and you know joel larson just played this list of cards that are all really great and didn't mess around with any of the other stuff including traverse the oven wild because for some reason in all the bannings of the tutors they've missed that one so
0: it's not that easy to turn on delirium and pioneer or it's you can't do it as consistently And even when you can, like, your payoffs aren't as efficient. So it's, like, not, it's, like, good, but it's not busted. And it's not, like, standard where the best thing to be doing was Delirium. So you had these mirror matches that devolved into who cast Imricle second or something. Or first or whatever. Also, uh, regarding the blue-black deck, the Coax from the Blind Eternities, I find that card's addition pretty cool.
1: Oh, you Uh, you like that?
0: It's like a thing to sideboard in, as a way to play around uh side effects. Yep. That is nice.
1: Which deck had that? Which which version had that in it? Was it in the
0: Japanese list. Uh, Andrew Jessup has one in his sideboard in the Star City Games Open. Okay. And then some of the Japanese players were playing it. I think.
1: Yeah, I saw I saw the Japanese players playing with it. I don't know if any of them made top eight. I saw it cast, and I was like, it took me a second, and then I was like, oh, yeah. That's, like, your way to get it. Like, it's a straight one-for-one one trade. Like, this is crazy. So, mm-hmm. I-, I liked it a lot. I liked I liked that. Um, there was also, there was, you know, a lot of people were playing, like, the 5-mana Ashiok, too, as a as a sideboard plan. I don't know if I like 5-mana Ashiok, because you can't protect it. But um, I guess you have cries. If, if you I guess if you, like go full-on, like, I'm going blue-black control, but I just don't know if the payoff's worth it when you look at some of these other Pioneer deck lists, so... so.
0: I I I like Pack Red as a pivot plan, and I still think if I was to test this deck, I would probably try, like, some number of Tasker. Just, like, a couple copies to, um... just to pivot into. If you can actually afford the space. uh, It does... It does kind of... Well, not kind of. It does fight for space with dig-through time, so that may be an issue, but uh, it could have potential. I'm not completely sure. Well,
1: I mean, it, it feeds dig-through time, right? So it's kind of cool there.
0: Yeah, it fights dig-through time and then you can feed it later. Um, you... Like I said, I just like how it plays well with the post board gameplay patterns of, like, cast a bunch of discard spells and then like you're kind of just playing around, like your opponent's counter spells at that point, and Tasker not being affected by uh, dispute, and it does get hit by stroke, but we'll see how that happens. And it dodges most of the re- removal in the mirror. Um, it just stands out to me as just a way to kind of sideboard punish people and then also build value. Like you know, you can. Almost completely freely tap out on your opponents and step to activate Tasker in these mirrors. Like, the only real punisher is Dig Through Time, but your Tasker is also fueling your Dig Through Time, so, like, you can arguably just, like, punish back.
1: Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think Tasker sounds like a cool idea. I, I do think that they're probably, like, fighting. They I think they actually have so many good creatures now that they, they're, that's their problem. And some, and some of the lists also. Are very heavily delve because they have like four dig two times and one murderous cut. So mm-hmm. I don't know if the delve creatures could necessarily fit in those decks without without pack rats or some other discard enabler. But um, beyond that, like I mean, I love I love the idea of Tasker because this deck just wants some value. So because you've got to get something back for all the cards you give away with the discard effects. Yeah, for sure. Oh. Um, did you did you have happen to look at the, the Niv-Mizzet deck by uh, PV?
0: I watched a Matthew Folk stream a bit of it, and I saw PV's list. Um, the main deck Slaughter game seemed pretty good, but his the times I caught Five Color Niv on camera, the deck didn't look that impressive. It was just kind of imploding. But I've also seen the range of what the deck can do, and uh, it seems... Like the deck is just mono powerful cards so i think
1: uh, his yeah. list in particular was very good because he um he gave up on some of the value a lot of a lot of people like they work like the old analytics like when we were doing counterbalance anal- analysis like i need some more three drops and this that and the other and they'll do the same thing well i need some more rectus or i need some more boros and this that and the other and pv even said on on um on an interview You know, it's not necessarily about drawing, you know, eight cards. It's drawing five really good ones or four really good ones. So don't play the bad cards. And it was like, it was just a very good, good, clean, here's how to play good magic.
0: What struck me as interesting is how he has the three Gilded Goose, whereas the other lists have the, like, hexproof 2-1 Mana Dork. Um, Paradise Yeah that may be it Paradise Druid yes. It's Hexproof as long as it's untapped Yeah it's Paradise Druid um, The Gilded Geese seem nice For at least curving out a bit faster uh, it, You know They obviously seem better on the draw I'm not really sure How well he can turn one them Four, five, six, seven So seven Nine green sources Hmm he can do it enough of the time for it to be worth it. Um that's something I'd have to see how that plays out compared to uh the I think he's got eleven, you right? Know. He's got eleven. Did I miss some? Three <laughs> ring pool, a forest, mana confluence. Two mana confluence, yep. two overgrown tomb. Uh
1: stomping ground, temple gardens.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I missed the temple gardens. I saw a bunch of temples, and I assumed they were all there as temples. Yeah, he's got over 10, so he can do it. I mean, I was actually surprised because
1: I, he didn't round out the playset. Like, he went with the one-thoughtsies. <laughs> that was what surprised me. Because like, I feel like that's like the analog, right? You got one-thoughtsies sitting there, and then only three one-drops. Because, like, I understand why he put them in there, because they help sti- they stifle aggro. And the food token later on can be very important. I just couldn't figure out why I didn't go to the fourth one.
0: Yeah i i i don't know enough about this deck's construction to have a strong enough, you know, really critique it. I guess I can mostly just say it's like X or Y thing is interesting to me, or you know, uh, gilded. Another reason for gilded goose over druid though is that your mana base can be pretty painful, so just having the the food source actually seems nice for recouping life loss. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he's not paying Siege Rhino, which a lot of people were playing. Uh, so, And he's only has two euro, so he's struggling a little bit against aggro.
1: Yeah, I think he needs the O2... Me, I think he needs the O2 for like mono black and stuff, so you can stifle their first hit and make him like invest three mana into the um, the one that gives them, like plus three plus three. I can the pump knight, yeah, the pump knight, like just so he can punch through, because like the I mean he can the goose can hold you know check the first couple turns you know, so and especially against uh, the artifact deck, the insol deck, it's got like eight colorless one one haste creep, so like the goose will help in that same case like. And if they have to spend mana getting through the goose, then they're not developing their board as fast. And I don't think any deck beats this. If the, de- the game goes long, this deck is beating all of their deck.
0: Sure, it's like this weird bastardization of mid range and control. Where, like, you know, if you get to resolve your five mana, six, six flyer that draws three to four cards, you're just going to bully your opponent. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah, and then, I mean, in the Niv mizzets it's. The Nev Mizzets is like great because like it, it, it instantly eats and has to eat a removal spell for for most people to keep you continue playing magic, and then like you know whatever you picked off of it was juicy, so and then Nahiri the Harbingers were really good. I was really surprised how good they looked.
0: Yeah, I saw Nahiri be good for Matt Folks. Um, I am surprised by two euro like. That card just solos a lot of games by itself. Just having that mana sink in the life gain engine seems so nice. Um,
1: yeah, I saw I saw Nahiri um, ultimate, get a Niv-Mizzet, put it into play, draw five cards, attack with Niv-Mizzet, bring it back to the hand. I was just like, vomit, that's too much value. <laughs> I was just like, what do you do against that?
0: <laughs> like... Does Nahiri ult, outrule, like, overrule uh, Euro? Because I don't think that's yeah. how that works, right? No. It, oh, no, it, no. sorry, you said niv Yeah, I said niv For some reason, I thought you said Euro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a
1: Niv-Mizzet that drew, like, a ton of cards.
0: and I just... Yeah, if you get to ult Nahiri for Niv-Mizzet and <laughs> it doesn't die on your turn, then... I think it's concede a clock from your opponent, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, oh, yeah, yes, definitely. Not only is it concede a clock, it's go find someone and punch them because you're angry. <laughs> what What happened to you in your last round, My Opponent put a six-six dragon in play, smacked me with it, drew four cards with the pr- with the promise of next turn drawing four more. I had fun, <laughs> so you know, I I, I like the deck. I was baffled by the hour of devastation. That was the one card. Where I was like, "Ha, huh, you have a lot of stuff in in your deck," so I wasn't sure about that one. Everything else, I loved the Hour of Devastation. I kind of
0: I, I think it answers. Um, it's like a good answer for random planeswalkers, and uh, I have to look at his mana base, uh, but I think his list can cast it slightly easier than Supreme Verdict or something like that. But
1: I was just looking at we've got Dreadbore, Anguish Unmaking abrupt decays we've got like a lot of stuff you know a lot of kill walker stuff i just don't know if i want to kill my stuff so because like our devastation kills your stuff too so i feel like we have a lot of. there's a lot of stuff in our deck i mean there's what 13 and 6 and 19 permanents on the battlefield yeah
0: but i think i think the deck's just probably better at rebuilding than most decks you know one niv just gets you pulled so far ahead
1: true the, but anyway, you see the breakout deck oh. all, number 2 of Bant Spirits, Spirit, like it's been like something that uh, Todd Anderson's been like championing and Bant Spirits like did well in both in both PTs Has been It's nice. It's just the modern deck. Like it's 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 just like a modern deck basically. The mana base is pretty much the same. The creatures are the same. It's playing Collected Company. So like, there's it's not missing much of anything.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, how about we quickly touch on legacy? Um, the leaving a legacy open happened. Uh, it was won by Freya Sanford, notable New England area lands pilot. They have this labeled fearless lands, which I'm assuming is some sort of inside joke. It was just old school lands, with nothing else. Yeah. Seems like a pretty stock red-green lands list. Um, I mean, we're talking the, like
1: four tireless trackers on the board, two Kroson grips, two chokes. Nothing new here, folks. One Field of the Dead, just one in the, in the main and one in the sideboard, just one. That was the only new card. Everything else is 2012 glory.
0: Yeah, the rest of this top eight is pretty or the rest of this top 16, pretty straightforward. A couple of Eureka lists, but it's not surprising given that people have been playing blue-black Omni. I'm not surprised to see a couple Eurekas floating around. Um, I am. Regardless of how suspect that card may be. St- yeah, but the th- if there's anywhere that where people are going to show up with like expensive, borderline, unplayable um, cards, it's going to be like an east coast legacy tournament right
1: oh yeah i want to crack mine out so bad but they're not
0: foil, which annoys me so what's up? yeah like I, this list eh. i guess people are playing eureka as just like a backup show-and-tell even though it's kind of like not a good card and
1: it's the um what was the old blue card you can pitch you can you can force a will another card with. it's basically dream halls yeah dream halls it's your dream halls right that can't yeah. be that can't be red blasted.
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I like
1: it. I think. It, I mean, you can't play dream halls anymore because you know blue so prevalent, it'll basically turn all of your opponent's cards into force. So I do think that Eureka is probably correct, even though I think it's super hard on the man.
0: Yeah, I I agree uh, that playing it is probably correct in some number. It's still just like the super expensive. Uh, really clunky effect that can be a huge liability, but I mean, I don't. Often you're probably not going to get punished.
1: I don't like it in my double, my double tomb, double traitors, mystic sanctuary deck, but <laughs> I, I mean, that's where they're at, right? I don't even. There's no forest, right? So th- uh,
0: one of these lists has a forest. Louis or Louise Gentile has a forest. But they're just leaning uh, on their, uh, their Astrolabes, right? Astrolabe? They don't have Astrolabe in here. Oh,
1: no, they don't. They've In the this... early list, like a long
0: time ago, I was seeing them. They were playing, but they were playing Bant. People are just playing Quad Trop and then like a bunch of Lotus Petals. Ugh. Uh, one of the lists only, the list that got second only has two Eurekas, which makes sense. The list that got fifth has... Uh, three Eurekas and they have a basic forest. They also have a trop and a volcanic and prismatic vistas. Okay, <sighs>
1: yeah, they've got less. All right, they've got less city of traders, more tombs. Ooh, they have a, they have the tree. Wow, veil of mm-hmm. summer and the tree.
0: Yeah, good old bitch tree.
1: <laughs> I'm just, I'm just looking at tree and veil of summer. I don't want my my opponents to play magic.
0: Pretty much um, Shout out to Ian McEwen Top 16 with Grixis Delver I don't know if I've ever seen Ian play Delver I think the closest I've seen is like Bant Stoneblade Yeah Chain Lightning Yeah This is huh. eh, He's got his it's fine I guess
1: He's got his three He's got three thought seasons And then he's got Oh yeah all the black Well I heard him talking about I think Leyline of the Void On one of the casts. So here they here they are.
0: Oh, now I know why chain lightning it looks so odd to me. Usually, there's a fatal push in that spot. Yep. Yeah. Also And then he has a sideboard snow-covered island, which is probably a uh, nod to like Moon Stompy specifically.
1: Yeah, I think it would still be better. I don't know. I don't know why the painful truth. Without the sanctuary, but I guess it's fine either way. It doesn't matter.
0: This is the side the sideboard looks like a I know who's showing up to this tournament. Here's what I expect. Like the third Plague Engineer, the snow covered island, ley lines, those are like very specific card choices. Um that really only makes sense in a smaller field. Definitely. You know?
1: Oh no, I definitely agree with that. I'm just looking at I'm looking at this painful truth going. I know I know uh HJ Kaiser played one in his, but I think he was moving into like
0: a bigger crisis tech. Hans, Hans played two in a Mystic Sanctuary. Yeah. And uh But he was going big, right? Post port um, Yeah, he was going big in the fact that he was like boarding in two truths in a Mystic Sanctuary. The rest of it was pretty much the same as Ian's list here. Well, I guess I was thinking like,
1: because of the um, the ancestral recall creature, um, Bedlam Reveler, and everything else, like he was like oh, becoming yeah, a yeah, gem yeah. deck and just, you know, drawing all the removal, cracking, throwing stuff at his opponent's face, smacking them. and Ian's just
0: being efficient, you know, like I forgot about Bedlam Reveler being a card that saw play because people were talking about how hard it was on the mana and being in spots where they didn't want to cast it because their hand was good. And I was like, yeah, this doesn't seem like a shock. And then people moved back to Gurmag, which that must mean brazen borrowers aren't really a plenty in the format because when that card first started seeing play, I found Gurmag Angler to be pretty much unplayable um, because too many decks just could just cleanly answer it. Also Oko, right? Uh,
1: Oko just cleanly answers it.
0: That is still a card that's legal in this format, and that is not a card I'm seeing a lot of. I guess this Bug Delver list, and I assume these Infect lists. Infect is main deck and double Oko. Okay. Not a shock. It's a beatdown. I was kind of curious why there were three Infect decks in the top 16, and then two copies of Oko makes it all make sense, because... I don't think that deck is good enough to put three copies in the top sixteen of anything, regardless of you know, any reasonably sized field. Uh, without Oko, of course. But with Oko, anything is possible.
1: I think beyond that it's pretty it's a pretty standard top sixteen. I guess the infect deck is the only anomaly
0: Yeah, I mean it it looks like a local tournament top sixteen. A stack of meta decks, uh, a little bit of graveyard deck death and taxes person and um death and tax <laughs> yeah there's always death and taxes person
1: that's you know that's my favorite favorite description death and taxes person you know because it takes a special person to say you know what i'm content with playing these mediocre cards that are consistent and do their thing like
0: you obviously haven't lived until you've turned two to Thali on the draw. <laughs> are
1: you saying that's a that's a mighty accomplishment? Uh,
0: you know, it's a way of life.
1: Yeah, I know some people have given us grief for for hating on. I I, I think Tom uh, Negator when he was on, he was giving me grief about like, you know, th- these decks were better, and I'm like, ah you know you're playing the 2020 deck so you've got you've got a skewed view of the deck <laughs> for for those of us that are playing like normal cards it's not not that great of a deck but i don't know i just i tried it i played it i had fun with it once in a while i can't do it more than 3 or 4 rounds but what what do you think of the um the actual legacy challenge
0: uh it appears to be basically every other legacy challenge where you kind of look at it, and then there's just like some random decks, and then Strifo did well this week, uh, because there's like, you know, a good sixty percent chance that Strifo will do well in a given week. Did you see that? And uh,
1: reanimator took it down.
0: Oh, that's neat. <laughs>
1: it's like
0: Grizzlebrand.
1: Who? Who? Grizzlebrand? Like,
0: yeah. I mean, reanimator happens sometimes. I guess.
1: And then second place was the Jund deck, like Jund. Like I mean, I looked at it like three times, and I was like, "It's Jund. It's actual Jund."
0: <laughs> like, like I saw honorog lose to this guy after punting game one. This list looks kind of obnoxious. Um,
1: like no punishing fires, no no other value, no no no, no real new cards. We're just playing. Bloodbraids, Dark Confidence and Tarmogoyz, let's go
0: <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what I'm looking at I guess this is like built to beat graveyard decks and like Delver secrets like this deck doesn't even really look that insane versus like the blue soup decks but it seems like those are on a decline anyway So
1: well I just like I said I not want to break you I just saw it and just said John number two can't believe it and uh, that reanimator pilot couldn't be any happier for a finals match than the guy who's got what three three Tormod scripts and that's it.
0: No, two spell bomb, five graveyard hate effects, no cantrips. Yeah. But I mean no ley line, which is traditionally what Jun needs. Right. But it makes sense to play Tormod script and the like because uh it like Ley Line's better against the breach decks, but they have brazen bars and seals of bounce your thing and stuff um so you know you can't really lean in on leyline you can't afford to play the leyline gambit so you have to maybe play uh grave hate that you can draw into you know so
1: i mean it's actually kind of funny because I was going down the top eight and it was number f- the first island was until number five. And the only real blue soup deck is Stryfo. <laughs> the other two blue decks, there's only three blue decks in the top eight, and two of them are the Breach decks. And, and Stryfo is the, I don't know, the DAC Breach deck.
0: So it's like... Stryfo is Stryfo. I mean, he's... He is... Uh, he's efficiently figured out how to, uh, <laughs> you know, become his own archetype. So, you know, uh,
1: it's just, I look at the deck. and I'm just like, man, this deck is, yeah. Oh man. So the Jund deck 2 owed Stryfo. Wow. <laughs> I, I was like, I was like, I wonder how that matchup would go because Stryfo is a Jund deck too. But nah, nah, this, Agate Agate destroyed Stryfo. So maybe some bad
0: draws followed by, I mean, you know, hims and thoughts. Eggett plays one-drops, so he's already got Strypho being on the mana efficiency angle.
1: What? It's true. Oh, I, I know. I know, but it was funny. He
0: also has Carpet of Flowers. He has Nile Spellbomb. He has Pyroblast, Sylvan Library. Like, Plague Engineer isn't necessarily good against Chase, but you can, like, arguably board it in. I guess, okay, so he Chase isn't playing Strix anymore. Which he's played in the past, so like plague engineer isn't that great, but the rest of your deck is a bunch of two for ones, and you you're beating him on mana efficiency's sake. Yeah, and like, you know, I I see it, I see it.
1: I, I I see in ninth place, oval chase daredevil. I know this deck's been like running around. I just still don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. I I don't get it. You Can't explain to me why. Oval Chase Daredevil is so, like, but
0: whatever. Uh, because with your Riddlesmiths, it turns it into a draw. Like, it turns Riddlesmith into, um.
1: Oh, like so. Pure
0: Steel Paladin as opposed to a loot. Because you draw a card and then you discard your Oval Chase Daredevil. <laughs> and then, like, um, because oh, it's cat. When the artifact, yeah, yeah when it's the, cast. so like so it just comes. So out. when the uh, gotcha, yeah, when the artifact hinder, hits the battlefield, you get your Daredevil back, and then you just get to keep looping that way. Man, build, So that's why people play Daredevil.
1: Build your own SRAM.
0: Uh, but um, today there is an interesting post going around the Twitterverse by one Lee McLeod McLeod. McLeod? I don't. Mm maybe butchered that i'm sure one of the two will be correct maybe hopefully the world may never know and he simply posted be honest how do you rank yourself mental uh, on the factors of mental game technical play adaptability preparation and deck selection and i hate this for so many reasons um so I think a lot of people in Magic have the tendency to either over or under evaluate let me let me dial it back. So he doesn't actually give a scale at which to grade yourself on, which I think is a big problem. Because a lot of people um gave themselves A's and B's and, you know, uh it was on an A through F scale, right? And my issue with that is when you don't have a uniformed scale to operate on a lot of these posts seem delusional to me. Um, I saw a lot of people just kind of grading themselves very highly. And it was like, there's no way that, you know, like, what, what scale are you actually using? It's like me asking, you know, when you're in a room with someone and like one person's hot and the other person's cold. it's It's that, like you know, you have to give something objective to compare yourself to. And... Could be bell curve. Well, wish we're bell
1: have. curving it, right? We're just going to bell curve <laughs> it. Just right now, bell curve.
0: We're curving it for the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's um, right. <laughs> so, that's actually, like, a relevant thing. So, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the tendency for people um, to overestimate their abilities or be incapable of properly analyzing themselves in an objective way uh as defined by wikipedia the dunning-kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which people assess their cognitive ability as greater than it is it is related to the cognitive bias of illusory superiority and comes from the inability of people to recognize their lack of ability without the self-awareness and metacognition people cannot objectively evaluate their competence or incompetence Whoever wrote that just basically wrote the same thing three times in a row, worded differently. Regardless, um, I like I said, I saw a lot of posts where people rated themselves in ways that very clearly didn't make sense to me, given um, I, like, when I was looking at it, I kind of set the arbitrary standards of, like, F being the kitchen table magic player of just, hey, this is someone who plays magic. They know the rules, and their ability to play the game is solely rooted in like how much they need to know. Um, to pretty much have fun, right? That's their goal. They want to have fun. You don't need a uh, insane amount of skill to do that. And then D is like the average F and M player. Not bad. Not good. C is like, I don't know, the average grinder who isn't anything stellar per se. B would be someone, uh, trying to think of an example. Someone like Christian Calcano, Matt Sperling. Some, like when you think of the Pro Tour, you think of this person. And they're just like able to consistently play at that level. But they don't like excel as much as like the people I put in, like an A, who would be like you know Hall of Fame members, LSV, PVDDR, etc. Um, Johnny Magic. Yeah, yeah, that guy as well. <laughs> um, and like when you frame it that way, at least a lot of people's grades drop. But part of the reason why I dislike this, it, I think there's an issue in Magic. Where we partially play into people's logical fallacies. Coverage to a degree facilitates this. Where someone will watch coverage and like they'll think of a play based on all the information they're seeing. Which is like, you know, both players hands, the game state, and then they also have like commentary in their ear. So regardless of... So like most people are unable to really filter out all of that information and make plays solely from one side of the table. And then you start to think that you're like maybe better than you are. It helps build the dream, right? That's why a lot of people like GP coverage because you see a board saying and you go, Oh, I'd make this play. And then like LSU makes the play and you get to feel smart, uh, without acknowledging that you thought of the same line with, you know, a significant amount more interest, uh, a significant, uh, increased amount of information. Right. And um, with this post, it mostly just plays into Magic players' tendencies to either over evaluate themselves or under evaluate themselves. And I, I understand why people over evaluate themselves. Like, to a degree, it's like the ego protecting itself. Um, but I think for a lot of players, they had to deal with the era where, and this still happens to a degree these days where someone's worth as a human being is equated to their ability to play the game, which is a completely false equivalency. I agree. Uh, And I think that um, this exercise doesn't really facilitate much at all uh, in regards to really anything. It's just kind of an ego-stroking contest. And I think something that's like way more productive is actually reaching out to the people who have seen you play enough to actually judge you and that's like one of the harder things like if you look at these criteria which are arguably fairly vague in some degrees uh, there, there are very few people you know who have seen you play or interacted with you while you're playing enough to really adequately give you any critique but I think it is better to use an exercise like this to um, get an objective analysis of yourself. I mean, and,
1: I I don't understand how you can rate your own mental. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't think you can do that.
0: I think it depends on the person. Like, there were a number of people who pointed out, hey, I struggle with tournament anxiety, right? And I think that allows... The, you know, if you struggle with something pronounced like that, you're going to be way more self aware um of shortcomings in your mental game than someone who's just like, oh, I think my mental game's like a B or an A and they the reason they would put that there is like they haven't noticed any flaws, so it's like if it isn't broke, there must be nothing to fix. But I guess so,
1: so for me for the definition. So I don't think if you struggle like with you know self confidence or stuff like that. I don't think you have any Issues in your mental game. I wouldn't relate those things together. Like, because, like, I do understand, like, there is this, like, I need to, like, stay positive, stay focused and everything else. But at the same time, like, I don't really think you can, because the brain lies to itself. There's, like, tons of psychological books about your brain lies to itself all the time. So I don't know how you can actually say you can judge your mental that's
0: why i that's part of why i just like don't like this exercise right yeah also your technical the whole thing
1: i don't know how you can judge your own technical play because there's like tons of rules interactions you don't know i mean we're, we're very much uh most competitive magic players are really not that great with the rules they just repeat things so much
0: you know very few people play enough magic like the the thing about this exercise is like i said you, you either have to be really really good and then you can probably accurately assess yourself or you're like going to over or underrate yourself and it's better to have a third like a an outsider point of view on these things I, and go ahead uh no what
1: were you saying I was gonna say when I look at the the the, the one provided by this this person um I see preparation D, technical play B plus, mental game A. I don't understand how those work together, because I, I like I see preparation D, and I'm like, well, you've got your technical play up to a B plus. That means you've prepared and prepared yourself with the rules and interactions in your head, and that that requires like preparation. Your mental game's an A.
0: Well, I think preparation is like how well do you prepare for each event? Each event. Like individually, which the thing about these sections is that they're largely just arbitrary selected things on a like arbitrary defined scale. And in a way you're kind of meant to look at these as correlating effects or like these are the five things that make up a, a good magic player, but there's really more that goes into them or like, you know, you look at adaptability, like how well do you adapt to a metagame? is is that a question that goes with adaptability or deck selection, right? Or is it, or Uh, is it probably with
1: adapting to a weird deck on the fly in the middle of a GP?
0: Right. It's like in game adapting. Um, how well do these, like, is, are these things supposed to completely encompass, um, just like your constructed play or just your limited play or both? Like, you know, it's, this is a very flawed way of really looking at things. And I think it's more or less oversimplifying a player. And like, I think what I'm ultimately getting at is like, in some ways, it's like, it's a lot of people are way worse in magic than they think they are. Um, And that's totally fine for a lot of people. There's a point where you go, oh, I'm not that good And then you get to, like, take a step back and look at yourself. And then from there, like, realistically build yourself back up. Or, like, reach out to people who can assist you with your specific weak points. But I don't think that most people can actually just, like, look at themselves and go, hey, like, here's where I would be. Or here's where I see myself, right? It's like, what is, like, what is a B-plus in technical play? Like, is that based on, like, an average number of punts per tournament punts per game right like you know it's is this based on your baseline technical play like on the average day based on how much like your average amount of sleep or, or how much you eat throughout a tournament right like for some people they need to constantly eat throughout a tournament for other people uh they don't eat during a tournament like myself i tend to eat very light i'll eat like apples in between rounds basically like enough sugar to keep me going but nothing heavy to put me to sleep. Uh, how well I play technically is heavily dependent on how well I sleep the night before. Um, my technical play is like definitely dependent on my mental game that day. It's like a sliding scale, right? Adaptability is something that arguably like gets wrapped into technical play to a degree. Like, you know, I these just seem like five randomly chosen. Things that Like you know mental gain Has a cascading effect throughout Like I I get what he means By mental game Maybe like is he talking about bluffs Or is he just talking about like his ability to see through Bluffs and the more and more You think about these categories the more and more It They start to just seem way Too arbitrary and Convoluted or like
1: I I mean when I read this They blip
0: They blend together to me.
1: When I read this, I almost want to say, be honest, how bad are you? (laughs) Like, I feel like that's kind of like, and maybe that's a little harsh, but I mean, at the same time, like it's, it's, it's 2020, we shouldn't be going and labeling ourselves with like these basic, I I mean, undefined scopes and we're going to compare each other based off these undefined things. With a crazy grading scale that's insane. Because anyone, like all the people that I'm seeing A's from, and some of them are really good players, but they're not A's.
0: So, I mean, I'm, I just. I'm seeing a lot of people rate themselves definitely higher than they have any right to. And uh, I know of a few people who are getting clowned on in private at the current moment. Right. Uh, so... Based on their delusions. And like I said, it's like there are very few people who can realistically rate themselves on the upper end of the spectrum and by most like reasonable metrics, right? I I
1: couldn't give myself a
0: C or better in most of these
1: categories, but I'm also greater some of my parts than just me playing magic. So for me, like I don't really expect it you know some of these people on this you know here dedicate their lives to it so i can i kind of understand it i just i personally don't understand it i, I, I for me it's just like i said mental game like you were getting towards okay said so you were getting towards like, that point where i was like you know mental game can mean a million things technical play can mean a million all of this is kind of like silly to me
0: yeah like trying to apply an rpg stack cheat to a human being when it comes to just like a card game isn't like you can do it, but you have to do it on objective criteria, not just throwing out a tweet and like just kind of giving an example. Yeah. Which like, this isn't meant to be a dig at Lee. It's more just like, I hate stuff like this. I get magic's like whole push for like more positivity and stuff. But I think I really just don't think exercises like this are fruitful, uh, because it people are either going to walk away feeling needlessly superior, uh, feeling pretty berated, or like be self-deprecating for either like the sake of memes, which are just like hiding their insecurities, or you know, I don't, I don't think that this kind of thing actually has a really positive outcome
1: for uh, for all of magic's content. I really think there's a lack of education in magic. Um and I've I've always felt this way. I've never there was like one podcast. Um it was the it was the head games podcast. Uh one of the you know Brian Gottlieb was on it with the uh with another gentleman and there's like one other one I think that's a similar vein. But like, you know that I would rather have that. You know, be honest. What do you do to get your mental game prepared? You know, I'd rather have something like that. What do you do to increase your technical, you know what I'm saying? And then like people chime in on that stuff because then you're building into each other a little bit more and showing like what what you do to get to that higher state, if that makes sense. I
0: think there's been this obnoxious push for more and more people to create content in Magic. And I think what that has done is super saturated the market. And there's a lot of like, low-quality content, per se. Um, but, like, everybody's trying to get a piece of the pie, right? And I think that... Uh, like, there was... Like, when I got into Magic, articles were really good. You know, SCG Premium was really good. Um, Channel Fireball. Like, you could just click on a big Magic website on a Tuesday and read an article that fundamentally changed how you saw the game. And now, like, a lot of the articles just feel phoned in. There's a lot of content thrown around on Twitter that's, like, not that great. Hot takes. A lot
1: of hot take articles. That's what I've seen. A lot of hot takes are are complaining about wizard design or something like that. And, I mean, you know, we've gone on rants about wizard design on our cast at times. But, like, that's, like, that is, like, the filler. Like, you know, instead of, like, build... Building, making you better, making you see something you've never understood or saw before, you know, you know, a sideboarding strategy or even like a game theory, like what, how I approach a
0: game. So magic content has almost hit like a predatory stage where it's more profitable to make, you know, produce things that it's like, here is this information I have and I'm going to give it to you, but it's like, not long-term information right right it's it's, t- tune it's like here's <laughs> right it's like you can get my sideboard guide and stuff and it's like well you could just write a primer and teach someone how to write how to like build a sideboard um or like the fundamentals of sideboarding like these sort of things so like the whole system's set up in such a way to just kind of milk people for money consistently um and there's a subset of players who pretty much just buy into that and it's like you know whatever like get your money like not going to knock the hustle but i think overall that has definitely led to um that has led to a, an ecosystem where there is a lot of magic content and very little of it is actually worth ingesting and it's, like, due to the huge saturation, it's kind of hard to parse what you should and shouldn't spend time on. So it can... It's probably, like, easier for a lot of people to, like, not really read things, or they'll just, like, gravitate towards their favorite uh, personalities, like Patreon or whatever. And it's, like, you know, say la vie, I guess. It's...
1: I mean, my, my favorite story out of The weekend. It for content reasons was canister getting second place after after
0: posting posting yeah
1: posting all his deck lists streaming it for the last like week and a half like (laughs) he basically streaming his
0: deck list and then selling the sideboard guide and then got second right yeah
1: like he just like said called shot here i'm coming i'm gonna invert you (laughs) and it's like nobody it's like you didn't know like you knew what was coming it wasn't like the the deck that came out of nowhere, so I, I loved it. It was and and he's a very positive, even though he like he likes his memes and, you know, he likes to he he'll he'll rip on ch- Twitch chat if they ask silly questions, but at the same time, like he's there educating and giving good solid content, and he's teaching you about it. Like he'll tell you when he's doing a line, he'll walk you through it. This is my line to victory. It's my one out to steal this game that I should lose. I'm going to take it.
0: There's a huge push towards secrecy and magic. And it's largely irrelevant at most, like, skill levels in the game. Uh, a lot of the times people in, like, you could argue worlds, like the FCG Players Championship, like these small field tournaments, it matters, This like, secrecy matters, because you know it has a huge like if you know what people are playing it has a huge effect on how you build your deck but for like pro tours or whatever the field's large enough that it's not necessarily going to matter too much um especially since like you know i like canister wasn't releasing his deck list publicly before Watsy started just having everybody walk around and hand their 75 to their opponent and show them right Or, not the 75, like the 60, and then they would show what sideboard cards are in the deck. So, like, I know people were praising Canister for being transparent, and it's like, well, he's, like, 90% of the work in terms of transparency was already there. um, Like, done for him. He just realized that he could profit off of the other 10%. um.
1: Well, I actually think that's why he does it.
0: Not even because
1: of what's he doing making them reveal it. I think he would do it anyways because he's making more money with his Twitch numbers because he is saying, Hey, I'm gonna play this at the event. This is what I'm gonna play. And so that even if he burns out of the tournament, he still made those Twitch numbers, right?
0: Well it's just high E V, right? Yeah. I mean, like it's not only the Twitch numbers, it's also the people like buying like the deck guides and shit from him. Yes. Yeah. So you know, he's also a good enough player that, you know, there's gonna be a GP. There's gonna be you know whatever pro tour mythic whatever arena tournaments who you know uh, cockatrice underground dojo leagues like there's going to be enough of these events that he's going to do well at that it's all going to balance out so like if you have if you're in a position where you know like say you're going to play 12 tournaments in a year right and you know that you're realistically going to do really well in like two to three of them um Above average in maybe four of them, and then you're gonna like probably scrub uh, the last however many, or you'll do average or slightly below average, right? It's just like good EV to pad your costs by selling your testing going in. He's like, if you go to a Pro Tour bomb, it feels bad, but if you go to a Pro Tour bomb and had already made like you know 700 bucks off of people buying your deck then you don't really care right. right right it's like oh it's frustrating in terms of like the career points and what have you but in terms of the money side of things, you don't particularly care and then there's a super if you have upside a situation like this with you both <laughs> right like like he did well so he got money from both the pro tour and the streams and now people are well people are already like, oh man Canister's the shit so I'm gonna throw money at his face but like it's even better advertising right like every other time he was on coverage in the top 8 they talked about how he um they talked about how he you know posted his deck on whatever patreon or whatever so like he was just getting all this free advertising so you know
1: yeah i mean i think yeah he i think he went through discord but it doesn't matter like he openly posted it like for his you know people that paid they have to pay for it but then, like, it goes, above and, like, you know, basically, you know, the coverage mentioned it to everyone, like, a thousand times because they needed to make something interesting. and
0: They need a storyline, and they're struggling to make real storylines right now. Yeah. So, but this, yeah. like,
1: was great for Canister because, like, he did. He doubled down on it. He said, you know, if if I did terrible at the tournament, I still made money here, you know, and by doing both and then, you know, showing people I can still beat people while you know it. Because I'm just playing skill, you know. This isn't me yeah. building a deck. This isn't me. Uh, you know, no one knows about this. Isn't me surprising people with some sideboard technology. You know, this- I'm going to
0: let people in on this secret. The best player in the world can sell you their deck list or hand you a seventy-five, and that isn't a guarantee that you'll do well with it. Canister didn't do well at this tournament um, because. You know, he had the best deck list or whatever. He did well at this tournament, like, in part because he spends, like, 80 hours a week playing Magic. Like, he has a good fundamental base as a player and is obviously very good. But he also just gets to spend more time on the game than most of his competition. And a an amount of that time is, like, double or triple queuing. So he's just, like, not only playing more magic than most people but he's also using his time more effectively than most people Um, so it's like I, like I can hand someone a sideboard guide for like a Delrudeck or a Miracles list I built and it's like yeah you can read that thing front, back up, down, left, right you know under a green screen in a dark room and I can probably give you more information, or like you'll have a better idea of how to sideboard, or like under have a better understanding of the deck talking to me for 10 minutes than you would reading this guide. And that's just kind of how it is. And again, like I said, magic content creation has kind of hit this realm of being predatory where like you have people producing magic content not because they just like want to. But because there's like this end goal, I want to attract more money or I want to get Watsy's attention so I can get an invite to whatever tournament and blah, blah, blah. You know, Wizards still has this asinine idea that magic is going to be a real esport when it's a terrible spectator sport in every regard. And, you know, that isn't going to happen anytime soon unless something magical happens. But
1: um, I mean, I th- honestly, I think Canister, like he is pretty he, he's become slowly my favorite person, um, even though the music drives me crazy just because, um,
0: well, he's a heel.
1: Right. I mean, but it's when you watch him stream, he walks you through everything he's doing, you know, like if it's even if it's sometimes like something silly, he'll walk you through it. And, you know, he, he like he's t- he's describing his thought process, what his plans are why he keeps a hand? Why he doesn't keep a hand? Why, you know, what his what his plans are in the game? What his game plan is, and then like when it has to split, why it's splitting, and what he's gonna do about it? Like we don't get so that like, a lot. He's not entertaining you.
0: He's teaching you the. Like I said, most people get into streaming for the wrong reasons. Um, very few people are actually good enough to stream and impart knowledge, or like they are good enough to stream, but they aren't, they miss out on the education factor of streaming. Um, And I think at a certain point, a lot of magic streamers kind of devolve into like these grumpy old folks who get tired of dealing with Twitch chat and have disproportionate reactions to people's stupid questions. But like, I understand it. Like when you see like, when you have a bunch of people constantly asking you the same things over and over, it becomes frustrating. Um, And canister is able to do a good enough job of being entertaining in terms of realistically not having a personality, right? He just does the blank slate thing and just lets people project whatever onto him that they need to. He's like, he's just the dry humor guy. Um, So it's kind of, You know, it's just whatever, right? Um, But, I don't know. Like, this isn't a knock on him. Like like I said, you have your hustle. Get it. He's a good streamer. Um, He's one of the few magic streams I still enable to watch at this point. Uh, Like, you always know when you're watching him that you're getting high-quality analysis of what's going on. Um, And his process of, like... You know, he doesn't just, like... So, I'm not sure how many people actually experienced this, but with Magic Online, there is a pool to, like, keep your head above water, right? And what that does is, I think it naturally pushes people in a position where they get their deck to being good enough to consistently do well, and then they stop, trying things and one of the things that's admirable about canister uh is that he just tries things regardless of like he he doesn't care necessarily about the outcome of like how many play points he's winning or losing it's more a matter of here's this thing i want to try let's try it uh and i think a lot of people are playing to win, which leads to very repetitive cycles and uh, potential misevaluations of cards, or over overestimating cards, or like you know, going here's my seventy five. I'm not touching it because I'm doing well. I'm doing well enough with it. And uh, you know, Piotr does a good job of illustrating the correct process for using Moto as a testing tool because it can very easily turn into a not actually, uh, like non-functional thing that you're utilizing, and or you utilize it the wrong way, and you're just kind of jamming reps uh, aimlessly.
1: I mean, he'll actually mention one of my favorite things is he'll mention that a card is very fun, and he likes to play it because this card is fun, not because it's the most powerful thing, not because it's the most broken thing. Not because it's the most consistent thing. Because it's fun. And you know. Even though like it's not necessarily. What you're talking about with testing versus non-testing. He sometimes just has fun. You know he will mention. This card isn't what he would suggest. For a constructed tournament. He's playing it because he wanted to have a little fun. He's taking a break. And he's enjoying himself for a second. On stream you know. With a certain deck. And then he will play weird cards that you would never play. But then again like. When you look at his history of, he's broken some decks that, like, when you look at the deck at first, you're like, I don't, this isn't unplayable, you know. But it, he's pushed these cards into ways because most people wouldn't head down that path. So, I, I I don't even, you know, he doesn't stream Legacy. And I normally only watch Legacy streamers. But I watch uh... this guy
0: does he not do Legacy challenges anymore? He used to, like, triple Q them.
1: He used to do that, yeah. He would do it a little bit once in a while, but not really anymore because I think it's because, it's, you know, he's went with the audience, so... Well, he also
0: didn't really like Legacy. Right. He just, like, played it because it was a challenge, but I imagine now that there's a Pioneer challenge, he just plays that instead.
1: But he has a good time. Hey. Why me? Yawning, it, he just educates. I I feel like the like what the level that he educates people through his stream, even though, you know, he he's not entertaining as far as like you're not going to get a great personality out of him. But I'm okay with that because I'd rather have the dry education. So
0: Uh yeah, I just think that um, a lot of magic players need to reconsider why they're getting into content, and uh you know maybe consider building some sort of persona actually being interesting having an interesting personality maybe streaming isn't just um for everyone you know and i do think that uh people's perceived outlook that wizards is pushing people towards specifically streaming um is not the best for a lot of folks because i don't like i said i don't think a lot of people really like there are a lot of people who are educational but not interesting to watch and there are a lot of people who are interesting to watch but like their streams aren't necessarily like stimulating enough to stick around Um, and I think that some of these people would find not necessarily better success but they would probably click with better avenues of content production, writing articles, podcasting maybe Uh, even making videos right like there's a big difference between making a video for YouTube and like having to stream for some number of hours. Like when you're streaming, you just have to be on constantly. And for a lot of people that constant human interaction is pretty draining. Uh, That's why like I pretty much stopped streaming. I just didn't enjoy it. Like it's like fine for a little while. And then eventually you just get annoyed of like having to filter out bad lines from chatter.
1: Well, it's also like mental, like, your mental fortitude, right that's what it is
0: like yeah for, sometimes you just don't even want to talk to chat. It's just like I just kind of want to play this game and move on with my life
1: yeah, you're using it to unwind a lot of times you're using it to unwind or you know like you are to better you know yourself in some way like make but like he you know for canister or even like uh, yellow hat um these guys Manguchi. Manguchi, well. These guys that like stream these long hours—it's just like wow,
0: you know. Yama like, Killer, I don't understand how Yamakiller Killer does it. He his weekends consist of like triple to quadruple queuing, like events of multiple formats simultaneously, uh, while streaming it for like eight plus hours. Yeah, I mean that's just crazy. And, yeah, it sounds miserable. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, it's not miserable. Tom C our Patreon shout out this week. Tom C is awesome.
0: Big facts. Thank you, Tom. So, is there a, uh, other,
1: anything else you got on the docket today?
0: Not really. Um I'm tired. Got to update something for my other podcast and then uh try and sleep. So, yeah, uh you can find us on Patreon uh twitter gmail at thirst for cast i think i think that's a gmail i don't remember honestly that may be it it is um all right well you can send our your hate mail straight to our spam folder um you can find steve on twitter at race i am uh you just had to pick the i'm not spelling it don't.
1: Dude, I don't. <laughs> you find Lawrence Harmon at Lawrence Harmon. How boring. Also,
0: not. Oh, we're not going spe- <laughs> to. You would be surprised how many people do not know how to spell Lawrence.
1: No, I, I don't like, understand it. It's Lawrence.
0: <laughs> yeah, you could. Well, so there's L A U, right? There's that spelling, but there's also people who will like throw an E in in front of the like W or U and it's it's an interesting one or like um when i'm speaking fast it sounds like lauren so people think my name is lauren a number amount of the time and like sometimes when i'm talking on the phone i sound like a woman so like yeah it's a fun it's a fun dance anyway you can find our editor liz at ellie of the veil on twitter and uh yeah we'll uh, catch you next week out